Live from Utrecht, this is Bitcoin. Explained. George, you want to start the episode off with some boosts, is that right? That's right. Well, yeah, we've only got a few. Remind the listeners of the context here. So a boost, if you're using a podcasting 2.0 application, like Fountain and there's a couple of other ones, it can stream Satoshis right to our lightning node. And, and you people can, also, can make comments, apparently. Exactly. You can also leave a comment, and then you can attach Satoshis to that comment, and then there is a possibility that I'll read it. Do you have to attach Satoshis to to leave a comment? or is Yes, it? but you can add, like, one Satoshi. And they and these Satoshis go right into our pocket. That's right. Well, your pocket. I'm they go still, to my pocket, and then I send I'm it still to waiting for the last paycheck. Sure. Where's my money? You need to run your own full-time node. Then it can stream directly to you. All right, let's hear the best pay. Is this the best paying boost you're going to read? Coincidentally, yes. So this is T. Makerman or Makerman. I don't know. Hey, guys. Love the podcast. Thank you. Been mostly listening to old episodes until now and saw your setup with Podcasting 2.0. That's what we talk about. FYI, I could not find you, find you in the fountain search. If you're somehow having difficulty streaming sets, there is a another alternative podcast link, but that URL is unpronounceable and very long. So if you find me on Twitter or something, I'll tell you what it is. All right. Well, thank you, Makerman. How much did Makerman pay us, Shors? 10,000 Satoshi. Nice. All right. Shors, today we're going to discuss time locks. This was actually a suggestion by a friend of the show, Ruben Thompson. As you are well aware, but probably our listeners as well at this point, we increasingly have to dig deeper and deeper to come up with subjects to discuss because we've almost explained all of Bitcoin at this point. We have explained all of Bitcoin, except for a few things that take too much research. Yeah, for which we would really like to have an expert on the actual podcast at some point. But somehow we never had an episode on time locks yet. So this was a pretty good suggestion, I think. I think so too. So sure, we're going to discuss time locks. First of all, Maybe as a very, you know, most of our listeners will know this, but let's just start with a very general, what is a time lock? What is time? Oh, okay. (laughs) Yes, let's start there. (laughs) Yeah, a a time lock means that, so so normally when you make a transaction, you know, you create it in your wallet, you send it out to a bunch of other peers on the, in the network, and then eventually a miner will put it into a block, basically as soon as possible. But maybe there's a reason why you don't want that to happen immediately. You can use a time lock to prevent a transaction from being mined now, and it has to be mined after a certain date or a certain block height. Yeah, I guess the very even shorter summary I would give, but maybe it's a little inaccurate if I make it this short, but we'll get into that a little later. But I would just say it's a way of locking Bitcoins into the blockchain in a way that they cannot be spent yet, but they can be spent later. Well, the example, well, that's not always true because you can also do it in a way that is not yet in the blockchain itself. So you can make a transaction that cannot be put into the blockchain at all. Right. Okay. So I think that's the type of stuff we're going to get into throughout this episode. So anyways, that's a general idea. Somehow you want to prevent Bitcoins from being spent right now, but they should be able to be spent later. Right. That's the one sentence summary then, I guess. Okay, so has this always been an option in Bitcoin shorts? No, the very old version of Bitcoin did have a oh, wait, field wait, wait, that would wait. suggest one, that, but it didn't actually do it. Shorts, one step back. Maybe, we, or is it better to? So, uh, are there some examples of why you would want to do this, or should we mention these throughout the episode as well? We can probably For, try to explain them as we come up with it. 
Okay, so in that case, I interrupted you at a very bad time because you were given a great explanation of the history of time locks to start off with. And you yeah. said it, it wasn't always possible. No, it wasn't enforced. So in the original version of Bitcoin, what you could do is tell a transaction. You could tell a transaction that you didn't want it to be mined before a certain block, but this was a policy thing. So your peers might not relay it, but if it was in a block, you would still accept it. So in other words, you couldn't trust it for security purposes. Okay, first question, you say you can put it in a transaction, like where is it, how does it, what does this actually look like in this case? Yeah, so this early mechanism is called end lock time. So that is a transaction in the field all the way at the end of a transaction. Okay, so you actually attach it, it's part of the actual transaction. Yeah, it's part of the transaction hash as well. And in the very early days, as you said, if you put that in the transaction, that would mean that Bitcoin nodes will not if they receive the transaction over the peer-to-peer -peer network, they will ignore it. They will ignore it. And but miners, if it's in a block, they'll be fine. Right. So if some other miner somehow mines it, they'll still accept the block. So it wasn't a consensus rule. It was a peer-to-peer -peer network rule, essentially. Yeah. It was a mempool policy, as a you policy mentioned. Rule. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So this was at the very beginning. It was there, but not as a consensus rule. Yeah. And then I think fairly quickly, but I, I forgot to check when exactly, maybe 20. 12 or earlier this was turned into a consensus rule it, it was in the first year i'm pretty sure yeah because i did check it so unless my memory again is even worse than i think i, I think this was in the first or maybe the second year was made into an actual consensus rule well and it was also improved so the initial version i believe was only height so you could only say don't mind this before block height number 300 whatever but this was improved to also allow you to specify a time. So you could say, well, don't mind this before the year 2020, because maybe blocks come in faster or slower. So you can choose. Right. Okay. So year one, let's say roughly it was there as a policy rule. And then after, from my memory, about a year, it was implemented as a consensus rule. And that was end lock time. So that was one way of doing Okay, so maybe here is a good point to ask, why would anyone want to use this? Is, are there any ex practical examples of why someone yeah. would want to put this on their own transaction? I guess you could use it as some sort of dead man switch. So maybe <clears throat> you create a wallet and you're not sure that you're going to hold on to the private keys very well. Then, And you have a backup wallet somewhere else where you do think you'll hold on to the private keys very well. <clears throat> now, what you can do is you can make a transaction that goes from this you know, new wallet that you're not sure about back to your old wallet, and you put a time lock in it 10 years in the future. And then maybe if you lose your keys, you can still take that transaction that you signed when you did have the keys and broadcast it then to get your money back to the safe base. So it's kind of like a dead man switch because that transaction will, if you broadcast it, it eventually will happen. But if you just spend the coin somewhere else, then it won't happen. Just to be clear, so who's putting the time lock there in, in this end you lock? Are. So, so the creator of the transaction, that's the person that's putting the time lock there, right? Yes. Not the recipient, no. you, know, you know, because usually a recipient gives an address and the address... No, the recipient, in this case, in this example we did, you are the recipient, but in any case, you're giving the recipient, or maybe it's an inheritance thing, right? So you give a transaction to your children that you say, well, if you broadcast this thing, you'll get my coins, but R not before this year. And also not if I decide to move the coins in the meantime, because then that transaction will be unusable. Right. Well, that's kind of a clear example, I guess. Yeah. So you would give the actual transaction itself 
to you. Yeah, you so can you're give, not you can give it to them coins. very early because you're not giving them any private keys. You're just giving them this transaction. Like, well, if nothing else happens, these coins will be yours, assuming that the transaction goes to them. And uh, but I can change my mind. Right. Okay. So that this was essentially the first version of a time lock on Bitcoin. Now I think from there on the next step essentially was to actually enforce it on the blockchain, right? Am I saying that right? Yeah, that's what we talked about now as well. Well, so the difference is here you have a transaction that is not yet in the blockchain and you're preventing that transaction from being included. But the next thing that would happen is that a transaction would be in the blockchain, but your ability to spend it would be limited. So basically you're constraining the output of a transaction. You're not constraining the whole transaction, you're just saying, well, this output is here on the blockchain, but you can't spend it until the year 2100. Right. So in the previous example, when you want to give something to your kids with unlock time, you had to give them the actual transaction, which they would have to broadcast themselves later. And now we're moving to a situation, or I mean, yeah, now we're moving to a situation where you're sending them the coins on the blockchain, but you're but saying, you know, here they are, but you can't spend them until the year 2100, but they are yours. Exactly. Like, I can't take them back anymore. Okay. So what is this? So this uses a mechanism called check lock time verify. And what this really does under the hood is it says the output of the transaction is a script, right? Or a hash of a script, but, and the script says like the only transaction that can spend me is a transaction that has a high end lock time. So the enforcement happens by saying in order to spend it, you have to put in a very high end lock time. And because the blockchain will make sure that the high, a transaction with a high end lock time is not included before the year 2100, this works. So it's kind of a weird delegation of responsibility. Right. So this is check lock time verify. This was implemented in Bitcoin in 2015 through a soft fork. It's essentially, as you're explaining, it's still using and lock time. It's still using what we discussed before, but now there's an extra step as a soft fork that actually requires the next transaction when you want to spend the coins it requires that transaction to have unlock time, right? Yeah. Am I saying this right? That's correct. Because usually when you're spending a transaction, your out the output script determines how it can be spent, right? But it only determines what the input should be because normally in the input, you would put a signature or something like that. But now it's saying it's not just the input that has to be a certain way. The transaction itself has to have certain rules too. Yeah, so I guess, so one of the things, this changes I just mentioned with unlock time alone, the person that adds the lock time is the sender of the transaction. And now it's embedded also, like the recipient has to first decide yeah. that it has to be locked, right? Like the yeah, recipient the recipient, that... if you're trying to receive coins, if you want to receive coins from somebody, you have to give them the script that it goes to. So you're really constraining yourself in a way when you're doing this. But in the inheritance scenario, you would tell your kids like, you know, give me an address that has this script in it and your own public, because otherwise, of course, you wouldn't do this. And of course, there are more complicated setups like lightning things, et cetera, where you would want to use constructions like this. Yo, what is going on, guys? We are proud to have Voltage as a sponsor of this episode. How many of you developers out there have wanted a streamlined infrastructure provider for your particular project? Well, I'll tell you what. Voltage is the Bitcoin infrastructure provider you have been looking for that makes building on Bitcoin quick and easy, whether it's Bitcoin nodes, Lightning nodes, BTC pay, and so much more. But don't take it from me. Just ask the guys over at Amboss, Sphinx, Podcast Index, and Thunder Games, and so many others that you guys already know and love. 
Their enterprise-grade products make it fast and easy to build, deploy, and scale your next project. So make it easy on yourself. Even normie plebs can use the dashboard or API. Don't wait before the next block confirmation. Let your team focus on building great products and let Voltage handle all the rest. Voltage is your go-to zero management Bitcoin infrastructure solution. So you mentioned Lightning, but I don't think that's actually correct. Lightning doesn't use this. Lightning uses another time lock, which we're going to discuss next. Mm. But what are some examples for this CLTV type of time lock? Why would anyone want to use this? Apart, like, So we've discussed the inheritance uh, example, which I think is valid. And are there other examples you can think of? I don't know. You? Yeah, well, there's this thing called fidelity bonds. So that would be one example. If you somehow want to prove that you're not a spammer of some kind, then you have to actually lock up Bitcoins and prove that you've done so. Yeah, it's so, a way to publicly prove that you are locking up coins. That's true. Yeah, so that's one example. And I think another one is, what's that called? When you want to trustlessly exchange coins, right? You want to have some sort of trustless exchange. But then relative locks are probably better too. So we'll get to that. Yeah, well, so this one was rolled out first, and I definitely think this was one of the motivations, at least in Dub, at that point. What's this called? What I'm, I'm well, atomic swaps or atomic something. swaps. Yeah. Thank you. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, I mean, it's so a bit that, risky because you're composing the transactions at a certain time, but you don't know when they're actually going to be put on the chain. So if you use an absolute date, you know, you have to be careful with that sort of stuff. Right. Well, the idea with atomic swaps is that you basically publish a contract on the blockchain and say that's right and then the other person can claim the coins if they fulfill if they hmm. change yeah. it. Uh, send coins back on another yeah i guess in so that case it's up to you how long you want to how long you want that contract to be open well the point is if the other person doesn't do that so that's where the time lock comes in and after a while you can claim the coins back so that's why there mm -hmm. needs to be a time lock in these kinds of smart contracts so yeah time locks are very useful in many types of smart contracts that's probably their main use case right then so we come to lightning and check sequence verify yeah well right? actually yeah i mean lightning also required segwit to really work but this is one of the first goals that was taken to help with lightning okay so what's the difference between check lock time verify and check sequence verify so and, check and lock time check i mean in terms verify. of how you use it the usage basically just means that you can do relative times so you can say not at block 500,000, but you can say 10 blocks from now or 10 hours from now. That's basically the utility. And the way it's implemented is by something called N-sequence. Or well, it's implemented as a two-step process. First, there was a BIP68, which introduced N-sequence. And N-sequence is something you put on the input of a transaction. And it's similar to the N-lock time, which has a similar mechanic. So it's basically saying this input of this transaction can only be spent after five blocks. And that is five blocks after the output that is spending. So an input always spends an output. And by putting by setting an end sequence field on this input, you are saying this input can only spend an output that is at least 10 blocks old. And by itself, that's not very useful because you're just constraining yourself. But the code, the opcode check sequence verify uh, in a similar way to what we discussed before, can say, well, you can only spend this output if you provide an input that has a certain end sequence in it. What is an end sequence? It's just a number. It's a number that is put in the transaction input. Just like the end uh, lock time is a number that you put 
on a transaction as a whole. And it's interpreted as either a time or a height. But okay, like a relative okay. so, time or so, a relative height. So oh, seconds so, or... Right. Blocks. So if I understand you correctly, and sequence is was always in the Bitcoin protocol, but it was just a number that didn't actually mean anything? Yeah, exactly. It was meaningless. And so probably zero in most cases. And it was given a meaning in a soft work. And the meaning is like you cannot include this. You cannot put this input in a block. So the transaction as a whole, you can't put it in a block until this many blocks have gone by or this many seconds have gone by. Right. So this number that was always there is now interpreted by Bitcoin nodes to actually mean this is a time. Yes. Right. Okay. And then they will check if the time complies with the actual time in their computer clock to determine if enough time is Not passed. the computer clock, the time in the blocks. So the it, to be accurate, the median time passed. So take the timestamp that is in the last 11 blocks and you take the middle one. Well, if you're a miner, then you have to actually use your computer clock to determine if you include it in a block, I would assume, right? No, you can know this in advance because the rule, the way you, I think the way you do it is you look at the last block that you've received, and then you do this calculation with the 11 most recent blocks, and then you know what you can put in the mempool, and what you can put in the mempool is what you can put in the block. So you don't have to look at your computer time. You look at your computer time in order to produce a block, but the miner that is making the block that's actually enforcing this rule doesn't have to worry about his computer time, only has to worry about what the last block is that he's working with. Oh, well, that's an interesting detail. So it's not actually checking for the time, it's checking for the time based on blocks that have come before it. Yeah, and that's exactly so to prevent this type of confusion because what if your clocks are two seconds different or things like that? Oh, yeah, of course. So, it's, so it's, it uses a derivative of time, really. Yeah. Okay, so if I understand correctly, CLTV was essentially building on analog time, which we discussed at the start of the episode. The first thing we discussed was analog time and mm -hmm. CLTV, check lock time verify, was in fact using that. Check sequence verify does not use analog time. It instead uses end sequence. Yes, this and the end newly is, introduced. Thing. Right, so the end sequence, the sequence that's included in the new input for transaction so if you want to create a new trans transaction, you have to inc include an end sequence number. And that sequence number has to correspond with the actual time or the actual block height. And the relative only, time or the relative block height. Right, relative to... The, when it was included, when the output was being spent. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, well, that's clear enough for me. I hope our listeners are keeping up as well. Or maybe they're way ahead of me. Maybe they already understood what I'm still well, trying to figure is, out. Well, this is fairly confusing, so... Okay, so I think I understand that part. I think my next question would be, how then is the time actually embedded in the end sequence? How, is, how does this like literally work? It's either a number of seconds, I think, or a number of blocks. Okay, how do you know... Which one? How do you know which one? Yeah. yeah. So there's a little trick there. There's multiple ways you can do it, right? So we have this field that is left over from the olden days where it had no meaning and it was 32 bytes. So as an engineer, then you have to decide, okay, we have 32 bytes and we want to use this for two different things. So there are multiple ways you can do that. I'll just go on a little bit of a tangent because we'll get to a certain bug or issue that uses this problem. So how would you put that in there? Well, one thing you can do is you can say, well, I want to be able to put in both a date and a number, both of them. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take two bytes 
And I'm going to reserve you that for if you want to put in a date. And, and I'm going to use two bytes for a, a height. Block height is what you mean. Yeah, you want to put in both the date and the block height. You want to use the same number? I want to use the same... No, if I wanted to be able to specify both, because a script might ask either for a time or for a height, so naively you might say, well, I want to be able to do both. Let's just split the four bytes in half and use two bytes for one of them and the other two for the other one. Right. So if the first two bytes are used, that would mean time, for example. And if the other two are used, that would mean block. Height, yeah. Or you right? can use both of them if it means both. Right. Maybe you want to restrain both time and height. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but the problem with that approach would be that two bytes only gives you two to the power of 16 <clears throat> combinations. And that is about 65,000 numbers. So that means you could only use it for 65,000 blocks or 65,000 seconds. And I think 65,000 seconds is about a day. So so basically it gives you very limited options. I mean, you could define it as instead of seconds, you could say it's hours, etc. So you could do it this way, but it's not great. It doesn't give you a lot of room. So it's so what they do instead is, or what you can do instead is you say, oh, I'm going to take the first bit of this number. And if the first bit is zero, it means it's a, the rest, the other 31 bits are a date. And if the first bit is a one, the other 32 bits are a height. Right. Then you have two to the power of 32 combinations, which is 2 billion different numbers that you can put in there. Now, that's actually not how it works because it, what it's using instead is saying if the number is more than 500 million, it is interpreted as a date. If the number is less than 500 million, it is interpreted as a height. But that's do, essentially do you know the why same. It, do you know why it doesn't work in the way you explained first? That sounds cleaner to me somehow. I don't know. You don't know? Okay. So if it's if the number is higher than, what did you say, 500,000? 500 million, I think. Then it's a, which is which? If it's less than 500 million, it's interpreted as a number of blocks. Right. And if it's more than 500 million, it's interpreted as a timestamp. Okay. So yeah, I don't know why they didn't use the first bit. There may be some logic there. Right. Okay, well, that clears up that part for me. So that's how check sequence verify works. I guess I get yeah, that part. Yeah, I guess the other the thing is, my guess is that it is identical to how end lock time works. And that's just what whatever somebody or Satoshi did in the first year, right? To make that particular choice and not do it the other way. So check sequence verify was basically specifically implemented to better enable the Lightning Network. This mm -hmm. was in 2016. Do you know why this is better for the Lightning Network? Why? Well, because it? it lets you do relative time locks. So that means that if you're opening a channel or closing a channel, whatever, you can say, well, the other side can't, or, or if you're making a change inside the channel, you can say, the other side can get my coins if they give me a pre-image of the hash. And if they don't give me a pre-image of the hash, I'm going to, after two weeks, I'm going to take my coins back. So it's basically a way to do quick a quick escrow where you say, either give me the pre-image so I can take the coins or I'm going to take the money back. or so, so you can take the coins or I can take the money back. Wasn't it the case that under... The hash time lock contract, basically. Yeah, wasn't it the case that under CLTV, lightning channels could only be open for a predetermined amount of time? Yeah, like the problem is... or if, something? Exactly. If you don't use relative locks, you have to decide in advance, basically for everything in the channel, what's going to happen. You have to put actual deadlines in it. So by relative times, you get a lot more flexibility. Yeah, you can leave the channel open indefinitely, essentially. Yes. If you want to. Exactly. Yeah, okay. I think with uh, with absolute lock times, if my memory serves, what you would do is you would, um, your first transaction, the first time you make a transaction inside Lightning, because you're basically trading transactions 
with your counterparty and you don't publish them on the blockchain. But those transactions, every time you change the channel, have to change a bit. And so I think without relative lock times, you would pick a date in the future, you'd say the year 2100, and then you would do one transaction and you say, well, this one I can drop on the chain until the year 2100, but this new state that we've done, that we agreed on, I can drop that on the chain until the year 2099. And then we do another one and say, no, I can drop this on the chain until 2098. And that way, the last state is the first thing you can put in the blockchain. But that's, it's kind of tedious because you have to pick a final date and you want to pick that very far in the future so you can do lots of transactions. But then if you want to close the channel, you have to wait 100 years. So that was the problem with absolute times. Right. So that's why we got check sequence verify since 2016. All right. Yeah. So that, so and again, was that wasn't enough for Lightning because Lightning also needed SegWit to be practical. But sure. it's definitely useful. Okay, so we started with unlock time, then we had CLTV in 2015, then we had CSV in 2016. What's the next time lock? There is no next time lock. Ah, is this it, Shors? I think so, unless I miss something. Okay, and there was a bug you wanted to mention. There was something going on with CLTV and CSV. and Yeah, so the folks at Blockstream seem to have discovered this bug, and they discovered it while working on Miniscript. And we've done an episode about Miniscript, so I won't talk about it here. But basically, you want to be very careful that you do not put a time and a height in the same script. Either a relative time and a relative height or an absolute time and an absolute height. Don't combine those two. You can't use them both. You have to pick. Yeah, you can't use them both. So that means if you can have a script like... You, let's first say what you cannot do. You cannot have a script that says, this coin can only be spent after block 700,000 and after the year 2023. Yeah, if, or for, to name another example, you can't make like a multi-sig where you say Alice can spend this after this year, Bob can spend it after this height. You Right? Um, if it's two out of two, no, no, two no. different... No, if it's both conditions, you can't do it. But That's what, what I'm you're saying. describing here sounds more like an either or. Instead of two out of two. Two out of two. So yeah. they both have to... Yes. Okay. And then they can't use different... Yeah. They, they can, it can't be the case that one of them has to use CLTV and the other has to use CSV. That's that. You, no, whatever no, no, construction not, you want to come um, up with. It's not about combining CSV and CLTV. It's not about combining relative and absolute locks. It's about combining times and heights. Oh, regardless of whether it's CLTV yeah. or CSV. You exactly. can't combine time... Okay. Well... Ahead. I don't know, you might be able to use a time with a CLTV and then use a, a height with the end sequence. Okay, we're obviously getting into the weeds but, but now. But you don't want to do it just, for one, and the reason is pretty simple. I should just let you talk. Yeah, if you have a constraint that says, don't spend this after block 700,000, well, that 700,000 is expressed as a number, just 700,000. So you're saying height must be higher than 700,000. That's really what you're telling the blockchain. And then if you're saying it has to be after a certain date, well, then it has to be higher than 100 million or whatever, 500 million. I guess that if you're using end sequence, for, is this the problem? If you're using end sequence for both, so this is CSV related then. Yeah, right? I if think you're using my guess is that they both, both work the same way, but I haven't checked that. If you're using end sequence for both, but end sequence can only be interpreted in one way, then clearly you can't satisfy both conditions. That must be the problem, right? 
Yeah, but the way I explained it would not work. So, dear editor, we're going to quickly look this up. Yeah, dear editor, we're going to explain it again. So, so the reason... Yeah, uh, we're not exactly sure where to splice this in, but basically... So just splice it in wherever you think is best. <laughs> Sorry about this. So the reason you can combine uh, a timestamp and a height difference is that the if you're saying it has to be after six blocks, that means that the number that you're looking for is higher than six, but also lower than 500 million, because it has to be a height that you're comparing to. But if you're saying it has to be after a certain date, well, then the number must be higher than 500 million because it has to be a date. And so that can both be true. Uh, you cannot have an end sequence that is higher than 500 million, but also lower than 500 million. So now you have actually uh, put your coins in a place where they can never leave. Yeah. And this yeah, can the... be quite deceptive because the script, if you read it manually, it might look fine, but it's not. Yeah. The end sequence can only be interpreted in one of two ways so if you need to interpret it in both ways to satisfy a transaction then you have a problem yep yeah that's clear enough okay yeah i think that's all i have one more question before we stop sure last question so i noticed i happen to know that nowadays so the very first thing that we discussed was and lock time mm -hmm. and i so nowadays a lot of transactions or at least bitcoin core does this for example standards standard ads and lock time to every transaction they make and then i think the end lock time is basically just a current block or a very recent block anyways do you know the details or why this is yeah so i believe it sets it to the next block but I'm not sure. Yeah, my understanding from reading the wiki is that it has to do with something called v-sniping. And I believe that means is that you don't want to create a situation where, let's say the block reward is very low. So there's, uh, most blocks produce only zero Satoshis in, in, in uh, subsidy because we're in the year 2100. And I put a transaction on the chain that pays a million dollars in fees. Maybe some miner wants to rewind that block and also take the million dollars in fees. And I guess you can limit the damage by setting the height because at least the miner can only go back one block and not infinite blocks. But now I guess I'm just guessing what the reason was there. Yeah, no, that sounds about right to me. Okay, well, sure. in that case, I think we've basically explained and lock time. Well, no, we've explained all time locks, actually. We have explained all the time locks. And so now we're going to struggle to find a topic for next episode at some point. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Bitcoin Explained. My fellow plebs, come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from Miami 18th to 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up.
magazine time y'all bitcoin is for everyone lefties righties and the rejectors of the false dichotomy alike and that is why the newest bitcoin magazine print edition is called the orange party issue it features articles by president naive bukele jeff dice natalie smolinski eric Kaysen, max kaiser and jimmy song get your copy from the local barnes and noble bookstore or from the bitcoin magazine store at bitcoinmagazine.com and use promo code bm live to get 10 percent off your annual subscription today plebs if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the bitcoin market and broader macro environment then you need to subscribe to bitcoin magazine pro today there's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts dylan leclerc dr jeff ross and sam rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to subscribe today at bitcoinmagazinepro.com